This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Big Bad Preservation. Which is Bracket Satanic. And my latest Bay Area Book Raid. Cards and Commissars is a clever card game of glorious robot revolution where players control the means of production. It's from Atlas Games, the publisher of hits like Gloom and Once Upon a Time. The standard edition of Cards and Commissars is in stores now, but there are also a limited number of deluxe editions left over from the Kickstarter. This most equal apparatchik edition features wood screen-printed citizen tokens, neoprene mats for each faction leader, and a foil-stamped spot-gloss magnetic closure box. The deluxe edition is only available direct from Atlas Games while supplies last. If you like feeling smart, take that gameplay, awesome card combos, or satirical Soviet robots, Cogs and Commissars is a game you need to buy immediately. To order, visit atlas-games.com slash cogsdeluxe. Or follow the link in the show notes. As Lennon once said, the capitalist will sell you the rope you use to hang him in the form of a beautiful collector's edition board game. For the motherboard! The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut, and oh my god, that is a big miniature. And those are a lot of dice. Robin, I think there's a big bad on the table, because you know why? Because Patreon backer Ian Bankins has asked us... What are some good ways to introduce a recurring big bad so that players understand how big a threat it is while avoiding killing the players? And Ian, let me just break in here and say, always avoid killing your players. Yeah. It's not cool. There's insurance issues. I don't with care that. what you saw on the internet or on the YouTube, but don't do it. Only kill characters. That's a bright line and I'm going to insist on it here. Well, avoiding killing the characters and or leaving the players feel like they lost a fight. Robin, what are some good ways? Etc. And I assume you endorse not killing players. Just for the, uh, you know, the legal issues alone. Absolutely. So this is a, a question, uh, a perennial question. You think GURPS uh, has a lot of paperwork. Of and, uh, it is, uh, this time around it is framed in such a way as to remove my usual answer. Uh, because, uh, very briefly, the usual answer is steal from Ian Fleming. Uh, who always made sure that the that Bond and the Bond villain had uh, some way to interact in a situation where there was not yet any reason for a fight to break out. Exactly. Uh, but it was never his uh, intention to establish how big a physical threat Goldfinger was. Uh, you discover later on how big a threat the uh, sort of henchman figure is. Right. But here, we're trying to make the players not only aware of the uh, recurring villain who's going to come back for a bigger fight later, but also to uh, be afraid of them, to recognize them as a big, powerful threat. Um, and uh, the uh, part of this comes down to your rule system and how much control you have over what happens when uh, two sets of characters meet. And part of the bargain with players is that the uh, more complex and simulation-y, uh, which are two things that don't necessarily go together, but usually do, a system is 
the more they expect that maybe they have a shot of killing the villain at any time, regardless of your plans for how the narrative is going to uh, come out. And that seems actually to be sort of a thing that has grown up like kudzu entangled with the original social contract, because very early D&D was like, there's nothing. You come into the thing, the dice are going to roll you up a griffin, maybe, and it'll bite your head off. So always be ready to run. And somehow that got elited away as we started caring about challenge levels and things like that. And so in theory, the whole point of having GURPS is you could be a couple of guys walking along the street and you turn this corner and bam, there's Galactus. And what do you do? And fight him is not actually on the menu. You have to figure out something else that you would do if Galactus is there and how you can eventually figure out how to take down Galactus. But as you say, there seems to have grown up an assumption. And I don't know if it's more common in F20 games versus other kinds of uh, crunchy games, as you say, that uh, there is a, a innate possibility in every combat or if it's just lazy Hollywood storytelling ruining everyone's lives um, that uh, the doomed hero uh, or the series of clever stings is no longer part of our uh, vocabulary as much as just the CGI punch him up at the end. Well, I, I think you will find people who will agree that, oh, if this dragon is just too powerful to fight, we should run away from it. The question is, why can you why can you kill it in scene uh, six and not in scene one? Right. And, so, and the normal answer is you've leveled up. Right. And so I guess the simplest answer is just to let the rules do it, right? That yeah. if uh, make sure that they have a chance to progress uh, radically in power between the two different uh, encounters. But then there's the other half of, of Ian's question, which is he also doesn't want a TPK where they mm-hmm. go up against the creature and get uh, swatted around, or they don't want to feel that the GM has put the thumb on the scale by saying, okay, yeah, this time you fight Galactus, and he wipes the floor with you. Mm-hmm. Um, now, is this something players should expect to be immune from? Because, of course, it's absolutely the pattern in all kinds of pop culture that the uh, hero gets badly skunked by the uh, villain and has to go off and have a training sequence. You know, virtually every Shaw Brothers film... <laughs> Is <laughs> that to some right. extent, uh, some of them, you know, spend an entire act on the training sequence in order to justify why the hero can then finally come in and take satisfying uh, vengeance on the on the Heck, villain. It even happens to Clint Eastwood in um, uh, Fistful of Dollars. He has to be tenderly nursed by the by the beautiful lady and retrain himself to uh, shoot the the gun with his busted up hands. Right, uh, and which of course comes from Yojimbo and comes from the tradition that the the hero. Uh, has to get busted up, has to go through uh, a, a ritual of mortification in order to then uh, grow and, and have not only a reason uh, for us to root for him to finally come back and, and beat the bad guys, uh, but also undergo a uh, sort of twisted version of the, of the spiritual redemption. So, and then Eastwood being Eastwood, he just cuts out the first two-thirds of that arc with um, uh, High Plains Drifter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, this is just after the mortification has happened. It happened in a flashback. Now he's just coming back and just making everyone's lives yeah, out. You, you saw that in the other movie. You don't want to <laughs> right. see it again. But yeah. given these parameters, uh, mm-hmm. one way, for example, uh, again, to look at uh, the way the movies do it, that, that it is established that the uh, bad guy is uh, super formidable and requires more than just your uh, current uh, abilities and equipment is to the screenwriters will show the the bad guy uh, hurting somebody else. Uh, The least effective version of this is 
uh, you see them randomly kill one of their henchmen for a minor infraction, uh, <laughs> which is a, a trope I could do without ever seeing again yes. for uh, reasons we could enumerate if, if a Patreon backer asks. Well, in fact, we did. Yeah. We've done a whole segment on that very trope and how well, it is there awful. there we go. We don't, we don't need to go back to that one then. I mean, Patreon backers can request what they want. That's why they back. Yes. But we will or, just or say we already did that. Or type it into the search bar on the, on right, the site. Yeah. So uh, another way then is to have an initial encounter uh, where there are other uh, formidable NPCs present and the bad guy uh, uh, rips his way through them. And you know right. that these guys are tougher than you. And so yeah, they just killed Elminster and Green Lantern. What are you going to do? Yeah. Um. <laughs> or uh, another uh, way to do it is to show him being very formidable in that either uh, the bad guy is trying to achieve something other than killing all of the uh, player characters or the uh, uh, the good guys are uh, trying to do something other than kill the villain. So, right. That, that's your dingus fight, yeah. usually. The yeah. bad guy's coming after the dingus, which you've guarded or found or whatever, and he just smashes his way through all your defenses and beats you up and throws you into the corner. But he's not about killing you. He's about taking your dingus and going off. Or you have to get a dingus from the bad guy, and if you can get in fast, grab the dingus and dimension door your way out of there, uh, the bad guy can only do immense amounts of damage to you, not fatal amounts of damage to you in the two rounds you spend dingus grabbing. Right. And for dingus, that can be a, a bomb that he has set off. And so you have to, you know, defuse the bomb before uh, the, the building blows. And uh, he's around for the first couple of rounds. And then, you know, he splits because uh, bomb. So yeah. it's a, a sort of a truncated <laughs> fight where you get uh, a, a little bit pasted. But then your main focus is uh, defusing the bomb. And that way... You can then uh, get kicked around and then finally have a sense of victory, which is uh, what we're being asked to supply here, even though um, he's super tough. So that you, uh, yeah, he knocked us around, but at least we saved all the people in that building. And now we have a cool bomb. Yes. Now, another way to, to go about this, depending on the genre, is to use a familiar genre uh, cheat where the uh, being part of that genre assumes that you wish to be cheated in this way, and you can uh, have a scene where you fight the uh, bad guy and you get pasted, and then it turns out, well, this is a simulation program and that you were running, and with your you know psychic superhero technology or your holodeck or, or whatever it is, so that uh, you uh, get to run through one version of the battle, and then you find out that, oh, whew. and so instead of, oh, we got crushed, it's like, uh, oh, well, it wasn't really us getting crushed. It was a simula it was simulation us getting crushed, and so it doesn't feel uh, like you've been uh, totally skunked, or you, you, I think, buy into it more as, as the premise of having established how... And in a magicker setting, uh, the bad guy could attack you in dreams or on the astral plane or something like that, where you have the same sort of thing, where it's a simulation of you being crushed and skunked, and even then the GM can say, well, now the bad guy knows about your lightning power, and so he's going to show up and he's going to be, you know, covered in asbestos or whatever and uh the bad guy got a re had a reason to uh scout you that way and so it makes sense in the game that he wouldn't have just sent a you know a big demon to tear your arms off but you have the the knowledge of maybe his uh, attack approach and whatnot as well right now the question says introduce a big bad it doesn't mean have an initial encounter with the big bad so another way to go about this is you see video footage of the big bad ripping his way through uh half of the police department or you uh, go to the village and see that uh, it's uh, uh, all of the buildings have been completely leveled, and uh, the one survivor crawls out of the wreckage, and you say, "Which which army did this? There was no army. That was Nario the Red." And <gasps> so 
uh, you can have sort of secondhand accounts of how devastatingly powerful that uh, character is. And, and if one of your characters is psychic or, or a, a, a cleric or something, you could have prophetic dreams in which he sees the the big bad. If you aren't from an era where it, with television reporting, you could even see the big bad ripping up the, the village or tearing down the Druid Grove or, or doing whatever it is he's doing that is important to the character. And so you again have that, you know, video footage and you get to see how off, how awesome he is at, uh, you know, smacking aside, you know, a, a rank of longbowmen or a, or a werewolf or something and just beats it up and goes on with his, uh, with his, with his activities, his badness. Right. You can also have, uh, you can sort of go at this in reverse and have, a, have a, uh, a bad guy level up so that you, uh, have a, a sort of a, uh, an easy encounter with him for the first couple of rounds and then, uh, he says, well, I guess, uh, you've proven to me that, uh, uh you are worthy opponents. Uh, let me remove my, uh, collar of binding that normally restrains me against, yes. uh, uh, people who are uh, not of my rank. And then and you do not understand. I am not left-handed. Yes, exactly. And so, uh, that sort of reverses the pattern insofar as you, uh, you, you got a few licks in and then you got, uh, uh pasted and then you have to go and, and undergo the, uh, actually something kind of exactly like that happened in my, um, 13th age game where the players were fighting a lich who was an appropriate level, Rob Heinso for the players to fight. And they got stomped by him. And when one of the player characters basically was, was killed by him, sent to Hades, he got the, um, uh, pomegranate of immortality that she had stolen previously in a slightly earlier part of the adventure. And so he leveled up by stealing their magic item and using it. It was very logical. Yeah. Um, another way that you can have the bad guy pace the heroes and have it not feel quite uh, so much like they, uh, that they unfairly lost is that they can have their bacon saved because of something else that they've already done to overcome an obstacle. So that then feels that even though they lost the fight, the, uh, arrival of the cavalry to come and drag them out of, uh, a certain death is, uh, on them rather than just being a random GM thing that, uh, you know, saves them. So for example, right. fortunately Superman was flying by. Yeah. But not just that Superman is flying by cause that feels like a cheat, right. but that last episode you did Superman a favor and he said, well, I guess you're not such punks after all in his condescending Superman way. And, uh, because that was a victory because he owes you a favor it's not, it's like, well, this is finally my chance to come along and, and, uh, and save you fellas. And, and then, uh, you know that it was something that you did, uh, rather than just a, a deus ex machina coming along to, uh, or even, to you know, you saved Jimmy Olsen's life, uh, from the bomb. And so Jimmy is like, you know, don't worry guys, I got this. And he punches his signal watch and you know, you just have to stay alive for three more rounds and then Superman's going to show up and, and you can, um, get out of there with some dignity. Right. And, uh, that can then be, and I guess part of this is that, you know, if, if one pl- character really gets uh, creamed, the entire group feels it. Uh, mm-hmm. And so uh, if, uh, <laughs> if if one person is sort of on the brink of death and then the, they're able to save him. Right. So that uh, mm-hmm. if the bad guy concentrates all of his fire on one particular character and then there's some sort of uh, thing, victorious thing that they can do to, you know, load him into the ambulance or. Uh, you know, get draw the, his fire onto them. <laughs> yeah, or, or you know, find the the uh, healing crystal uh, in the wall and escape with it. Whatever that is, that the uh, there's the big down note of the one 
uh, character uh, uh, falling and going into a death spiral, but then there's the up note of uh, saving them from the death spiral. So uh, sort of having him concentrate his fire on one particular uh, character can also give you that feeling of an extremely formidable threat that you need to go around the, the side to get at while uh, still not making uh, everybody feel terrible because then they, they do something on the other end that kind of reverses that. And on that note, I think uh, one of the keys to a recurring big bad also is that they have to go away for a little while in order for you to feel excited when they come back, right? So that uh, if they beat you uh, right away, you've got to have a big, long training sequence. Well, our training sequence is this next commercial. And when we emerge on the other side, we'll be completely different and ready to tackle another threat. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touch the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? The rattling of chains, the creaking of spooky doors, and the spooky calls of the spectral undead lure us. They don't lure us so much as terrify us, but still, we are boldly going into the horror hut, for within the horror hut lies the finest and most excellent of subjects for gaming. And in this case, Robin, you have a kind of a, a fraught subject or a special subject, and we want to talk, I suppose, about how it has been done before and what we can do with it now. What lurks within, Robin? Right, so we're going to look at uh, the uh, witch horror, uh, or, and these witches... Uh, if they are horrifying witches, and they're in the Western tradition, it would probably turn out that they are satanic witches. Um, and we could probably go on for 15 minutes in trying to disentangle the spectrum between uh, witch horror, uh, Satanist horror, and where they meet in the middle. Um, and we're in an uptick of uh, interest in uh, in witches again. Uh, there, uh, one of the big horror movies of last year, which I won't name because it's sort of a spoiler that it turns out to be this kind of horror movie. So that kind of horror movie, but that was a, a big surprise, uh, hit. Uh, we have, uh, we've had uh, witches a couple of years ago. We've had, 
the new uh, version of Sabrina has sympathetic characters yep. who are satanic witches. <laughs> Uh, but of course, as you suggest, this is extremely fraught because this is taking uh, something that was a real life source of horror in people's lives and in current cultures uh, in the world today. There are uh, even as we speak, there may be someone who's being uh, uh, harmed or possibly even killed because they're being accused of witchcraft or uh, sorcery. And in real life, uh, that is uh, a genuine horror, not a fun horror. And, uh, and one in which, uh, at different periods of history, a lot of, uh, sort of marginalized or outsider people, particularly women, are, uh, uh, rounded up and murdered. Sometimes because they own property that, uh, other people want, or sometimes because, uh, uh, having a, a scapegoat to point to and to stir up violence in a community is, uh, is useful to the powers that be. So how do we, uh, square the, uh, actual historical reality of witches and witchcraft with uh, the idea that it is sometimes entertaining to see them in uh, a horror situation in, in fiction. How do you strike that balance? Well, I mean, to begin with, uh, the same way that when we tell stories about vampires and werewolves, we're not actually telling a story about a guy with a bad blood disorder or a guy who is uh, suffering from starvation cannibalism, which is where uh, vampires and werewolves probably begin. Certainly if you define tuberculosis as a blood disorder, I think we've pretty much covered that, uh, that, that country pretty well. We're talking about the imaginary vampire, the imaginary werewolf, the thing that frightens people. And uh, just as people get in trouble for liking vampires too much, speaking of, uh, of the rest of it, that you, you can, uh, had, we had werewolf panics in France in the 16th century that were basically the same thing as witch panics, except they happened in times of famine. And so that was where people's, uh, sort of cultural fear turned toward. Um, so we're not talking about any actual practitioners of Wicca or members of the Church of Satan. And we are certainly not trying to talk about the poor schmucks who get caught up in some degree of social um, uh, shaming madness uh, that uh, we have not yet evolved out of, even in our own beautiful millennial lives. Um, uh, it just involves more uh, rock throwing and uh, and whatnot in um, parts of the world now than it does currently. But hey, we can always regress. That's the good news, people. Um, we are talking about the imaginary witch, the imaginary Satanist. Um, and in fact, there are real honest to God, people who, for one reason or another, either because it is a way to get cred as a magic doer, will adopt the cloak of the imaginary to do real things. So uh, we have talked previously about the Ring of the Poisons in France, where regardless of the number of people who may have been sort of caught up in it in um, uh, in wild accusation or court politics ways, there does seem at the center of it to have been a woman who practiced, at the very least, illegal abortionary and uh, probably other sorts of things you can do with stuff you find in the garden. And in order to sell that more effectively dressed it up in the color of, of Satanism, which she would of course have learned from the church saying, don't be a Satanist. And here's the long list of ways to tell you're a Satanist. And if you take that list and turn it into a lifestyle, then you can sell your, um, uh, your love potions for more money. So that's, Basically, the beautiful cycle that happens over and over and over again, and I'm sure it happens in New Guinea. Someone is like, uh, just mad at their neighbor and they're like, well, I know what witches do. I'm going to do witch stuff to mess with them. And then it gets out of hand. So, uh, that's just the way of the world. And, and one thing that, uh, distinguishes the way that, uh, witches are, are often treated in genre is that 
it's not about hunting down the powerless lady at the end of the lane and stringing her up, but rather you enter a community which has been heavily infiltrated by a large uh, group of people who acting together uh, are powerful. And so the, the things that are uh, terrifying about that is that uh, the protagonists are outnumbered and alone. Uh, they are uh, unable to uh, trust uh, others. They don't know who to reach out to for help because you don't know who is going to turn out to be a, a witch. And that there are perfectly ordinary people around you who are, in fact, the power structure in the uh, creepy town you go to or your own town. And so uh, the treatments of witches, particularly in uh, horror films, tend to invert the pattern of the uh, it's no longer fear of the outsider, but fear of being the isolated person in a community uh, that uh, rips off its mask and turns out to be uh, terrible. And it's coming for you uh, for whatever reason. Either you are uh, just you're an intruder who uh, came in at the wrong time and you're going to blow the gaff. And that's sort of the one where they're at uh, powerful in this isolated community, but they're not powerful in the, in the wider world. Or there's the other trope where it turns out that you are the ideal sacrifice, uh, that they have, uh, uh lured to their uh, town, or you have some sort of, um, hereditary connection that you discover in the course of the, uh, movie or novel or adventure. And therefore, uh, you are the special target of, of the witch. So there's also, and then there's uh, the, and there's the witch that is the outsider literally and that they are lurking outside the circle of light. And that is your Blair witch type witch or the witch type witch where the witch is the malevolent figure and is kind of just a name for a demon. Really. It's not like they have to, you know, um, get eye of newt together and, and, involve themselves in society the way that the traditional witch does. They are a forest uh, monster um, and they'll do forest monstery things to you. And it just so happens that the way that we see that or refer to that is as a witch, even though if you watch the Blair Witch, um, a movie with very little witchcraft, just uh, demonry and badness. Yes. And and so that's the, the one pattern. That's the uh, going outside of civilization and dropping into the woods, the scary place where you shouldn't go at night. And then the other half of that is your rosemary baby or, uh, where, uh, you know, that you are in an urban environment and, uh, the people who are all around you, who you think you can trust, uh, that you think that you, uh, are able to rely on them as you can rely on people in civil society, uh, in, turn out to be, uh, the, uh, terrible people who are uh, trying to do you in and, uh, uh, gain a power at your expense. And, uh, whether that's to sacrifice you or to, uh, have you give birth to a demon baby or to uh, use this, uh, you as a vessel of possession that it is the uh, the urban fear of being preyed upon uh, by your uh, apparently normal neighbors is also part of uh, this whole uh, idea. And, and it's something that you can, uh, you know, reskin basically to any sort of conspiracy. So mm-hmm. uh, you can use the pattern of, uh, of Rosemary's baby to, uh, have them be, you know, they can be aliens. They can uh, just be regular people who uh, believe something terrible. Uh, there doesn't necessarily have to be a supernatural element to it as either. So that's also part of the horror decision making, right? As they are these people who incorrectly believe that they uh, can summon demons and and wield powers. Are they people who uh, disbelieve but are using the belief of others uh, against them? Or 
uh, are they in fact, do they turn out to be uh, magical and able to uh, levitate and, and so on? And all of those different options uh, are uh, ones that uh, I guess uh, speak to your grander philosophical point about your relationship to uh, either society or the lack of society. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, the uh, sort of the Rosemary's Baby school of witchcraft is more what traditional witch panics are like is, oh, my God, witches be everywhere. We got to kill them all. Um, uh, although, of course, in Rosemary's Baby, that's not what happens. Uh, but the witches are everywhere. Um, Susperia, same sort of thing where you are uh, lured into a a seemingly normal situation and turns out this this society that you are now part of is is upside down. It is inverted, literally, in that uh, the devil is on top, witches are on top, and uh, decent uh, dancers are on the bottom. So is there is the current vogue for witches a reflection, uh, a sort of a, a pop culture jazzing up of our uh, sort of current political era where conspiracy theories in the air and uh, people who you thought were terrible turn out to be worse or... What do we think of in terms of why all of a sudden is there a, a renaissance of, uh, of stories about this? Is it about the, the, uh, the growth of scapegoating or is it again, uh, just a, uh, a coincidence of uh, one person made a cool witch movie. So a bunch of other people are doing it as well. I mean, never underestimate the, the, the great man theory of the conjuring making $200 million or whatever it did. Um, the, the fact that you can, you, you suddenly could get, uh, you know, minor superhero money out of a witch for nine bucks and a, and a Ouija board is not, I think, ignored by the good people in Hollywood. So you can't rule that out ever. Um, but I think a lot of it is also, like you say, there is a sense of, um, I mean, we're, like I said, we're in a world of, of ongoing social shaming and panics that basically resemble witchcraft panics. So someone says something, you know, awful and then they're dragged on it on the internet for it forever. Um, because, you know, Goody, Goody Watson saw them traducing intersectionality, get her. Um, uh, and so you have to go after them. And that's, that's a, a real fear that people have. There is, I think, in a lot of ways, uh, we're seeing a sort of a reaction to women who are perfectly capable of running their own lives and the degree to which witchcraft panic is gendered, which is not as big a degree as uh, say your Barbara Ehrenreichs think it is, but it's still a big part, certainly not least because Barbara Ehrenreich was uh, part of a century long tradition of misunderstanding the witchcraft trials. And so now if you are a male Hollywood producer, maybe you are interested in a movie where there is a powerful female figure who wants her own stuff and can't be stopped. And because it speaks to you as a male Hollywood producer. And so you green light it. Um, and so I think that there's maybe some of that going on that uh, horror movies are not just expressions of society's sort of, progressive fears uh they're also expressions obviously of society's reactionary fears and i think that you could maybe uh put a finger on some of these uh female gendered monsters as examples of a response by a primarily male dominated artistic medium uh to uh, the rise of uh, women i think that 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 is not off the table either and part of it uh, again is that uh I, I think uh, the the old uh, sort of um, uh, uh, torture movies had sort of given up the ghost a little bit that they had run out and everyone was sort of looking around for a new thing. And it's at that moment where a movie like The Conjuring can sort of blow up and break free in a way that it maybe couldn't have if it had been released, you know, a decade earlier in the in the teeth, as it were, of the Saw uh, binge. Right. And we're also seeing sort of a, a constellation of 
different related genres that come into uh, play with each other. And, and so that a ghost movie, a haunted house movie, a demonic possession movie, and a witch movie can all intermingle with one another with different elements of, of that. Yeah, you can you can sort of shuffle pieces of those cards in and out of, of, of your deck when you're making your movie. Right. So, uh, you know, the first act can seem like a ghost movie, and then it turns out to be witches. Or the idea that there's possibly a witch conspiracy, then it could turn out to be uh, you could have the classic uh, exorcism as the as the climax of the film. And, you know, there's certainly, uh, although uh, The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby were both part of the original wave of uh, satanic horror movies, they didn't intermingle their tropes the way that movies that now refer to them do. Um, so how do we uh, try and uh, create something that's, that's fresh uh, in that space rather than something that just sort of... Uh, is another version of Rosemary's Baby or The Wicker Man or uh, The Exorcist. We've uh, had uh, a lot of that. Uh, I guess one way is uh, you could have your uh, sympathetic uh, and unsympathetic witches doing a battle with one another, which uh, gives your uh, brings you into more of an occult adventure uh, space than a than a straight up horror space. The good old The Craft, for example, where where you have the 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 first act is the oh my god there are witches, and then the second act is the good versus bad witches. So that's that that's fun. Um, I think another thing that help it doesn't necessarily help movies because movies depend on different things than games. But I think specificity is big. So if it's just any old haunted house, that's fine. But if you can nail down what's going on in the house and give it a, a an actual geographical location and make it feel like a real place, that's stronger. And that's that's actually truer in movies as well, uh, specifically haunted houses. But I think in in gameplay, the notion that it's not just a matter of run up and down the stairs for 45 minutes, that there's some historical reality or some emotional reality that you're trying to uncover, I, I think um, elevates an individual haunted house story so that there's a possibility of a genuine result from the investigation instead of we're really just marking time until we have the big um, uh, exorcism scene. Right. And particularly in the investigative a realm of uh, gumshoe and other uh, horror uh, role-playing games, witches and hidden satanic covens uh, both uh, really suit that medium because uh, there are people that you go and talk to. You have mm -hmm. to go around and find out who's in the conspiracy and who isn't. You have, they have a plot that they're trying to uh, enact. There's something uh, they're doing more than just wandering around the uh, woods, uh, sticking machetes into uh, uh, teenagers who are making out with each other. There's, so there's a, uh, all sorts of ways in order to interleave the uh, the witch conspiracy uh, with the mystery genre, and so that's uh, and and part of that uh, again can be ways to find out. Uh, so you can freshen that up by having a an unexpected group of people turning out to be the witches, or the witches are trying to do um, uh, something uh, unexpected. And and uh, uh, one way to put a twist on that is that uh, maybe the great working that they have to uh, sacrifice uh, seven teenagers for, uh, maybe they're going to, uh, you know, uh, re reduce the carbon footprint of uh, mm -hmm. uh, of uh, an entire nation for a, a decade and save the... It's like, well, how much do I really like those teenagers? <laughs> they are jerks. They, they keep referring to bands I've never heard of. Yes, exactly. I hate those guys. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the very classic things. And also that feeds into sort of the modern which as uh, the sort of neo-pagan Wiccan who is uh, one with the land. And of course the Wicker Man does that and turns it on its head 
even before that was not on its head. And it, it's an amazing movie and everyone should watch it. But that connection, uh, because we've only gotten fonder, I think, as a society of, of people who are into trees. Uh, and so now the, the witchers are like, no, it's where the trees told us to murder all these people. It's like, well, you know, you got to listen to the trees. They have to have a voice. The, they're, the trees they're need part nutrients. of this earth. They do. And so, yeah, maybe that is the thing. Or there is the sort of classic, uh, you don't understand we're killing these people sort of cabin in the woods style so that these hideous monsters don't come out and, and eat everything. Very sort of a, a darker uh, Lovecraftian way where we have to shove someone off this rock on Easter Island so that the statues don't come alive and, and, and monstrous to death. Uh, a, a thing like that where you have a, a notion that there's a, a a literal scapegoat, as you talk about, but the scapegoat is not, in this case, the witch. It's the person being murdered by the witch to draw the attention of the supernatural away from the the community. And that again takes a a bad witch, uh, a, a bad element of the of the myth, where you find the the mean uh, old lady that no one likes, and you say, let's just burn her out and take her house. Um, but uh, instead of that, you're like, oh, the reason you're killing that mean old lady is because you're a witch. Kind of, well, how do I feel about this? And that in, in, implicates you in the society that would allow this kind of thing to happen, which makes it a better game than just, you know, a Roythe Witch. And not that a Roythe Witch is a bad game, but it, it's it's got a, really, a fairly narrow, uh, narrow emotional range to it. Well, one thing about witches is that they can cast spells that cause commercials to appear. But huh. if, they're, if they're good witches, there'll be more content on the other side of those commercials. Well, let's Let's hope. Werewolves of Dacia? They are the descendants of the other son, uh, Romulus's twin. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Abjure the works of podcast cancellation by joining such Patreon supporters as... Chris Farrell. Alexander Zimmerman. Anderson Todd. Joe Webb. And Ludovic Chavant. So, Ken, it's not quite a spring yet in either Chicago or Toronto, but if it's starting to kind of think about being spring, that means that you've recently come back from your annual jaunt to the Bay Area to attend that uh, venerable and beloved regional con, uh, DunderCon, 
and somehow you always manage to find your way to a bookstore or two uh, and come back with a big old pile of books, uh, which are now eminently deductible because we talk about them here in the segment we call Ken's Bookshelf. Have you got your virtual stack of uh, I do of, of, of books, and are you ready to caress their covers? We can feel the their fine uh, dust jackets or uh, slightly laminated uh, used uh, uh, covers. Uh, and so let's uh, get right to it with, uh, let's see, what do we got here? The Universal History of Numbers from Prehistory to the Invention of the Computer by Georges Ifra. Uh, this is just what it says. It's, you know, um, here's how numbers have been. And it goes into all manner of kinds of numbers, not just good old uh, Arabic numbers, but also uh, exciting other numbers uh, like Mayan numbers. And um, why did it take forever for cool Arabic numbers to happen? And how did you count in uh, in pre even before we had Greek alphabets? How did you how did you make numbers? How did the ancient Egyptians do numbers? And that's uh, sort of the just the notion of how do you represent that? And it's a it's a big, pretty book, which is part of it. But also, it uh, covers a lot of ground, which is the kind of thing I like in a reference book. It's a, it's a grand old survey. It is. A um, little more specialized, uh, we have Slave Revolts in Antiquity by uh, Teresa Urbanchik. And uh, that is uh, also, though, a, a big uh, subject of which I guess Spartacus is the uh, is the most famous, but it's often a question about uh, various institutions of slavery is uh, why didn't they revolt? And the answer almost invariably is they did all the time and were horrifically suppressed and murdered. Right. And then we don't know about it because <laughs> guess who writes histories? It's usually <laughs> the guys who are asking slaves to sharpen their pen. Yeah. Then we had some unpleasantness that we're not going to talk about. That we're not going to go into, and we're certainly not going to let our slave take down our lengthy thoughts on um, uh, the uh, of <laughs> technology of Spartacus. Uh, yeah, this, this basically, as I'm working on Hellenistica, you, you cannot evade the fact that the Hellenistic age, as interesting as it is, and as sort of weirdly charming as it is in a lot of ways, is like every era before the Industrial Revolution, pretty much dependent entirely on slave labor. And uh, in role-playing games, you allied that in the same way that you allied uh, debt peonage and other hideous stuff in uh, uh, in D and D. But yeah, start um, with Earth, but not too much Earth. That's a bummer. Like, not grimy Earth. Yeah. That's disgusting. Uh, but there is a guy who I am uh, very fond of, whose name is Dremikos, and he led a slave revolt on the island of Chios in exactly my period. And so um, the notion of having a cool. Uh, Robin Hoodie, uh, sl- uh, revolted slave who basically owns the island of Chios and maybe is, can send you on missions to free other slaves if that's the kind of game you want to play. I think that that's terrific. And then I just wanted to be able to say with some authority, here is the, the situation as you find it if you decide to make that part of your game. And I certainly understand that many people in fantasy games don't want to worry about means of production. God bless them. And so you just say, Oh, probably everyone you meet is a paid servant, and there's no reason to even think about who grew the food yeah. um, or mind the silver that you're stealing, um, because you're stealing it from that guy. So you're better than than him for having slaves. And there's, there's magic to help. With yeah, all this also there is magic. But yeah, um, I, I think it's just important to sort of keep an eye on, the, on like you say, the, the, the grimy part of the historical earth, even if it is not a centered part of the game. And Dreamicos of Kios is just an awesome guy, and I think this may have pretty much every word in English that we know about that poor bastard uh, for for the reason previously adduced. Still on the uh, Hellenic trip, we have The Harvest of Hellenism, a history of the Near East from the death of Alexander to the triumph of Christianity by F.E. Peters. So this basically sounds like the 
uh, uh, central hub of your research. Yeah, it's 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 an older book. It came out, I think, 71 or 72. Um, it's very much talking about the cultural effect of Hellenism on the Near East. Uh, not so much did they build cities and did they, you know, dig canals and did they do that kind of thing, but how, what did they do to the to the mindset of the people? How did it interact with, specifically, because it's 1971, how did it interact specifically with Jewish monotheism to produce, in the argument of our author, Christianity? Christianity basically is a blending, certainly post-St. Paul, of uh, rhetoric and, uh, and, and uh, Hellenistic thoughts about society with a fairly particularist, at that time, Judaism to create this new thing and that the sort of the interplay back and forth between those forces uh, in Peter's mind dominates the Middle East, certainly, and it dominates it literally by the time of Constantine, which is when he ends the book. I'm only going to use like the first three chapters of it, but again, I got a book about uh, gods and magic, so looking at how actual gods uh, bickered and argued is probably not a small part of that. Uh, We go, we zoom way forward in history now to soldiers of the Virginia colony, 1607 to 1699 by D.A. Tisdale. Uh, those are very precise dates. Right. And you'd think that that was an Osprey book, but it is not. It's just very like an Osprey book. It's someone said, I like an Osprey book, but I would like it to be even more nitpicky and bigger. <laughs> and that's what they did. Um, basically, uh, the reason for the latter date is that that's the date that the colonies uh, charter changed, I guess, in the wake of the um, Glorious Revolution and the and the reworking of everything. So it becomes a sort, of, sort of a new state after 1699. Before 1699, it's still very much the sort of uh, Cavaliers settled there both during and uh, after the Civil War. And then in 1699, it sort of gets reformed as a regular crown colony. And I think that's uh, one of the sort of reasons for that demarcation point. But up until then, they've got, of course, lots of wars with uh, the Indians. They've got the the threat from the, the French. And they've got literally a rebellion in 1676, Bacon's Rebellion, uh, which is another big uh, unsung part of American history at roughly the same time as uh, King Philip's War is is roiling uh, New England. So there's a lot of stuff going on between uh, the 1670s and then uh, the uh, restoration and the attempt by uh, James uh, to enforce total crown dominion over the place until everything sort of settles out with uh, the the Hanovers after that. So that's very nuts and boltsy. And it looks like if you were to basically take something about soldiers are seem very exciting. So let's, let's go uh, down even deeper into the, uh, the sediment of, Good old-fashioned uh, lifestyle history. We have farmers and fishermen, two centuries of work in Essex County, Massachusetts, from 1630 to 1850. So this is basically a, a uh, history of pre-industrial uh, labor in one particular place. Yeah, it's a social history of Essex County, Massachusetts, oh, and basically. Oh, it's by Daniel Vickers. I think I forgot to uh, right. name it. Um, and Essex County, Massachusetts, people may notice, is where... Lovecraft country is. That's where Arkham and Innsmouth and all of those places are. So I think this, um, the, the book was only like two bucks. I got it at a, uh, friends of the library bookstore in, um, uh, I want to say Lafayette, California. I'll be corrected if I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm going to say Lafayette, California. Um, and, uh, it, it's a lovely place and they have lots of books and they have many fewer after I visit because as I said, two bucks, I probably wouldn't have taken a flyer on a social history of Eastern Massachusetts, even being me, but, I figure if you are going to look at the uh, the real lived roots of Arkham or Innsmouth and you want to sort of try and 
be a little more uh, uh, rigorous than, uh, oh, my God, frog people. I think knowing maybe what those families were doing back in the day is, is kind of an important part of that. So why not? You know, it, it's good for the Lovecraft. Right. Because if you ever want to ask yourself the question, here are people who are also frogs and they've survived for uh, hundreds of years in this place. What are they actually doing to survive? Are they, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they can't just strictly be eating people because uh, they would notice. People would notice. So. <laughs> they would. Yeah. So uh, what are, you know, what's the material culture of uh, of this uh, uh, hybrid alien race? Um, so next we come to the Joaquin Band, the history behind the legend by Lori Lee Wilson. And I have to confess, this is a legend that I am completely unfamiliar with. Who are the Joaquin Band? The Joaquin Band uh, refers to the uh, band of uh, <laughs> the band of bandits. He said usefully, uh, run by a guy named Joaquin Murieta, who is also known as the Robin Hood of the West, but mostly by Spanish-speaking people in the West, uh, because he was driven off his land by the hated Americans. Anglo's chased him off his land and um, uh, turned to banditry, and uh, he is often considered to be a uh, extraordinarily um, uh, violent killer. And this is, I think, by uh, people who are uh, white landowners think that. And he is also considered to be a beautiful social bandit who would never hurt a fly and just kiss babies and left candy everywhere. And I think those are primarily uh, Hispanic uh, uh, working types that propagated that version of the legend. And uh, this book attempts, one hopes, to get to the bottom of it. And I suspect he murdered a few people, but about half of them had it coming. And because that seems to be roughly the average for the West. And my take on it is Joaquin Murrieta is just, you know, Johnson County gang with a with a different press agent, right? So I guess I did kind of know that because I know the, the Riot Cooter song about that. Right, exactly. And um, and you know Zorro, who is in su- in some small part perhaps based on uh, the, the good part of Joaquin Murrieta. Uh, next up, we have uh, Three Empires on the Nile, the Victorian Jihad, 1869 to 1899 by Dominic Green. And this is about the rise of the Mahdi in the Sudan, uh, about the displacement of the Ottomans from Egypt by the British, and uh, uh, then the uh, terrifying panic that the British had when the Mahdi rose up in the Sudan and uh, threatened to possibly uh, displace everybody from Egypt. Uh, not everybody. Probably many of the Egyptians would have been allowed to stay, but all the British would not. And uh, the, uh, the the Mahdi uh, captured uh, General Gordon and, and killified him and uh, made a martyr. And so the British had to go send a long column snaking down the Nile to take over the Sudan with the result that the Sudan is the garden spot of the world today. No, hold on. It's a miserable uh, hellhole. But this is <laughs> miserable hellhole the origin years, I guess. Uh, and next we have the Bonneau Gang, the story of the French illegalists by Richard Perry. Um, when I uh, got this at Moe's Books, which is an amazing uh, bookstore in Berkeley that I've mentioned previously, our uh, lovely mutual friend Ariel Celeste said, oh, the Bonneau Gang, like that, um, <laughs> as if to indict my dilettantish interest in the anarchist movement. But let me tell you, these are anarchist bank robbers, so they are awesome. Um, Jules Bonneau may or may not have invented the getaway car, Robin. Think about that. It seems inevitable in retrospect, though. It does. I mean, someone would have invented it, but someone's got to be first, right? It's like Charles Lindbergh's the first guy to fly the Atlantic solo. 
Someone else would have, but he's the guy. So Jules Bonneau also, speaking of press agents, he would go to a sympathetic uh, liberal and left-wing papers and say, oh, there's going to be such a great robbery. You guys aren't going to believe it. And he would give them the story of the robbery so that as the robbery is happening, they could print the big headline uh, and, and get the, the exclusive on it. And so he kind of is – you know, postmodernism avant la lettre in a way that the event and the truth are, are, are not the same thing necessarily. He's very exciting figure in a lot of ways. Plus the police had to bring an armored car full of machine guns to kill him. So right there, that's good stuff as well. Well, uh, since we have a getaway car uh, right here, let's uh, get in it, escape this segment, uh, drive to another uh, similar segment uh, with this exciting commercial as cover. Haster, who's the great old one and who's the greatest old one? Time to find out. It's WrestleNomicon, con, 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 the card game from veterans of Magic the Gathering, Dungeons and Dragons, Epic Spell Wars, and Delta Green. As a fan of all things good, Max Nestorowicz said, I've never played something that captures the rhythm and back and forth of a fighting game like WrestleNomicon from Arc Dream Publishing. Plus, it's filled with eldritch horror goodness, premium puns, and A-plus artwork. Back it while you can. Find WrestleNomicon Con Con at Kickstarter or at WrestleNomicon.com. And we're back to our second part of the pile of books. Uh, and without further ado, let's uh, let's keep going. So uh, next on the big old pile is Empire of Deception by Dean Job. Uh, what sort of deception forms this empire? Well, I did not put in the uh, subtitle because it is super long, but it is The Incredible Story of a Master Swindler Who Seduced a City and Captivated a Nation. And the city is the great city of Chicago, Robin. Uh, a con man named Leo Caretz, who basically sold, I mean, you know, the classic con that everyone's doing in movies where it's, they've got like, you know, a silver mine that doesn't exist or a lumber that doesn't exist. They've got why these shares are worthless, that kind of thing. This is the guy who basically mastered that con and used it to roll into a pyramid scheme and make himself super wealthy. And, uh, it's just a, it's just a great inspiring story of the human spirit. And it's about Chicago in the twenties. So there you go. Book for Ken. And now we're, uh, back to, uh, wartime spying. We have a life in secrets, Vera Atkins and the missing agents of world war two by Sarah Helm. Uh, Vera Atkins is amazing. She's a super cool British spy mistress, spy master. Uh, she ran the French section of SOE, uh, pretty much. She had a bunch of agents in Europe. And then after, uh, the war, she sort of went into still sort of messed up France and Germany to find the agents that she had lost track of during the war and rescue them if they were in need of rescue and find out what happened to them and get them back onto the books of the British uh, intelligence. Um, so she's uh, sort of got, you know, a, a great, she's a good boss, I think, barring the part where she lets the Nazis penetrate her intelligence networks, but that happens to the best of us. 
in it, in that it literally happened to the best of us. Yeah. Uh, so she's just a terrific figure, very exciting, a great, uh, uh, NPC for your 1940s segment of uh, Dracula dossier, if you're into that, because she was born in Galati, Romania. Um, so <laughs> there's all manner of excitement going on there. Uh, and, uh, she was also a crack rifle shot. Uh, in addition to her other great talents, she um, apparently scored higher on the rifle than anyone in the SOE training, and she wanted to go out really and be in the field. And they were like, "You're you're you're really better at, at administration. We're going to keep you here." And it was because she was a lady. But there you go. Yeah. So maybe maybe even a player character. Right. Could be. Absolutely. Next, we have Little Man Meyer Lansky and the Gangster Life by Robert Lacey. Uh, there's going to be a bunch of biographies of uh, Meyer Lansky, but uh, can you have too many of them if you're Ken? Right. Um, I don't think you can. And I think this may be the only Meyer Lansky biography that I have per se, although I have a lot of other books that, you know, certainly uh, pay homage and obeisance to Meyer Lansky. Meyer Lansky being, of course, the the real guy who made the mob happen. He was the the guy who could read a balance sheet. And so uh, when the the mob is kind of tearing themselves apart, he's like, look, look, there's plenty of money if we all share. Look how expensive killing each other is. Yeah. So he sort of negotiates the the first uh, piece of the five families. He sets up a situation where he's an honest broker, if that word can be applied. But he basically, they trust him to run skims for all the casinos. Um, uh, they, I mean, the Chicago outfit sends a guy to break legs just in case, but Lansky's numbers are generally accepted numbers. And of course, Lansky makes a giant pile of money on that. He runs all the casinos in Cuba and is probably part of Operation Mongoose, the attempted killing of Castro by the CIA. Uh, so he's a, he's a figure who touches a lot of my, my area interests. Right. He's, he's the smart guy who's like, why don't we, Murder each other less. <laughs> and also, he um, uh, is one of the people who helped arm uh, the uh, Israeli insurgents against the hated British in the 30s and uh, provided a lot of uh, capital for uh, this establishment of the state of Israel because he had a uh, an interest in uh, perhaps having a place he could go in case he got in like, a lot of trouble and had to leave Florida, which is exactly what happened. Right. And, and of course, before that, it's like, why don't we have one state that's an open state where we can all operate without murdering each other for turf. Let's make it Florida. And by the way, I'm moving to Florida. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, he was a, he was a, he's a, he's a bad person, certainly, and not a noble human being in any way, but the sort of the, the vision, I mean, it's like if you read a biography of, of any other great American capitalist entrepreneur, or not even an entrepreneur, but a guy who sees a market and, and sets it up and makes it happen. He's sort of the, you know, I don't even know what the example would be, but you know, if you have a heroic banker shelf, a heroic Meyer Lansky fits right in. Right. It's like uh, this is an illegal business, but let's let's emphasize the second part of that. Uh, someone who who maybe emphasized the first part of that is named in the following book: The Mad Ones, Crazy Joe Gallo, and the Revolution at the Edge of the Underworld by Tom Folson. Contrasting figure. <laughs> oh yeah. Um. Part of this is just that Joe Gallo is a guy who, for whatever reason, he's basically he's part of. Uh, he, he's, a, he's an ambitious guy. He wants to rise in the five families. His last name is the wrong name. He attempts to basically uh, take over the Profaci family by kidnapping all the Profacis at once. That sort of doesn't work super well. There's a, a great deal of, uh, of of trouble. He gets ratted out, goes to prison. And in prison, he becomes radicalized, I guess, by reading a bunch of Sartre and Camus and other existential writers. And it turns out 
if you betrayed everyone you ever owed allegiance to and you're in prison, Sark makes a lot of sense. So he, um, uh, he comes out and he's like, I'm going to use my existential knowledge of philosophy. Uh, he's a big fan of Machiavelli and Ayn Rand is in the mix as well. <laughs> what a, because what it's, a surprise there. <laughs> it's a prison library, yeah. but he goes out and he's also wants to be part of the cool, uh, Greenwich Village scene because he's into that now. And, uh, I think, uh, Bob Dylan writes a song about him. Um, there's, uh, a he's lot a, of he's other a hipster mobster. Yeah. He's a hipster mobster. Exactly. And so it's, it's just part of that scene. So a little late for, uh, Fall of Delta Green, but it's certainly that same, uh, milieu. And so worthy on that level. And also just an interesting character, you know, very much a, a fun story arc, uh, for this guy. And it's a short book, which is nice. Uh, next up. Uh, we have Embers of War, The Fall of an Empire, and the Making of America's Vietnam by Frederick uh, Logoval or Logeval. And uh, this looks like uh, this could have come in handy for Fall of Delta Green and probably came in handy for uh, your adventure anthology you're working on. Yeah, uh, it's a little less handy because it kind of is more 50s than 60s, but 50s is the is the sort of um, uh, adventure backstory part of the Vietnam War, and so it's part of it. Logoval is, uh, I want to say he's Swedish, but he's certainly Scandinavian, so his history of the war is, uh, is, it's not an American history, so while he beats up on the Americans plenty, he's doing it from a different perspective than American leftists or, uh, war criminals, uh, do it. So the, uh, the, the history is, is interesting on that level. I think he has access to some, uh, French, uh, documents that are, that you don't usually find. So it's kind of a, you know, it, it's how do you supplant uh, the one empire with the other empire, including, it was not a friendly handover. There was, there was actual proxy warfare briefly between the French and the Americans in 1955 in Saigon. Uh, that's part of the story. And of course, my boy Edward Lansdale pops up in the last bit of it to sort of pick up the baton and, and carry us into the DM regime, uh, which is another great, uh, uh sort of a, a setting because it's that, uh, quiet American part. It's the, it's the precursor where you can sort of see the explosion coming. But, uh, in the, in the moment you have drama, sort of like the 1930s in Europe, the 1950s in Indochina, very similar feel. Uh, now we get very literary, but with Willeholm, the middle high German poem by Wolfram of Eschenbach. Yeah. Um, Wolfram of Eschenbach, I think is best known, not just to our listeners, but literally to everyone as the guy who wrote Parsifal, uh, the great epic of the grail, Willeholm, was not a sequel. It was a, just a different story, uh, based on a different French jest, but it is part of the extended, uh, Wolfram von Eschenbach uh, cinematic universe. So I've got a long mooted possible project involving the German Grail myth, and I picked up Villa Home because this is Villa Home in English, which is very helpful because I don't read middle high German. I don't even read middle low German. None of the middles. <laughs> <laughs> None of the Germans. And next we have uh, a, a more familiar uh, literary figure to uh, those in the Anglo world, Shakespeare's Medieval Craft, Remnants of the Mysteries on the London Stage by Kurt E. Schreier. And so does this mean that uh, the author believes that uh, 
uh, good old Bill has been uh, working uh, occult symbolism into his plays? Oh, we could wish. But by mysteries, he means the mystery plays, the plays that demonstrate uh, some aspect of the mystery of faith. Ah, that that so, mystery. That mystery, the story of Christ, the stories of uh, uh, the devil and saints, the, 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 the good stories of good people doing good. Right, because your your history of English theater begins with the mystery plays, which it are... Begins with the mystery plays. Yeah. And people used to think the mystery plays were over, and then there was about a 30-year fallow period and then Shakespeare comes along. But no, he has found mystery plays that are performed well down into the 16th century um, that uh, uh, and he looks at sort of the it's kind of I want to say basically the stage directions for them and says, look how many of these stage directions Shakespeare just borrows straight out that he's working within a technology in a way. So when Shakespeare is doing Macbeth, he's doing it uh, you know, on the mystery play set, if you can imagine Shakespeare as, as a cheap Paramount TV show where, uh, everything is spray painted and reused, uh, Shakespeare is doing that with the mystery plays. And that's, uh, what, uh, Schreier is aiming to demonstrate and not being an expert in the mystery plays and that being a funner story than the other one. I'm going to believe it. Well, uh, that book uh, sounded exciting and nutty, but turned out to be uh, normal and reasonable. So, I guess The Lost Empire of Atlantis by Gavin Menzies, is that going to bring the crazy? Oh, yeah. Gavin Menzies is perhaps most uh, famous for his book 1421 about the Chinese discovery of uh, America and all manner of other things. And then he has an increasingly insane bunch of books. This is his book about Atlantis, in which he talks about how the ancient civilization of Crete is Atlantis. And so far, so good. That's a legitimate interpretation. Oh, and also it's settled Lake Superior. And now, uh, record scratch, what? And there's a very cool map at the beginning where he colors in all the parts of the world where he expects to be demonstrating to you that the ancient Cretan Empire extended. You may be wondering how we Minotaurs wound it up in Kappa's casing. Record exactly. scratch. Record scratch. Uh, so there's, uh, so there's a great deal of, uh, well, I, I, in fairness, it's probably mostly very sifted ore because Menzies is kind of a sloppy bad writer, but he does pile up a lot of stuff in each of his books. And this one is, if I'm looking for a ancient, uh, Cretan Bronze Age empire, I think, uh, the lost empire of Atlantis is as good as the next one. Uh, next we have Hitler, the survival myth by, uh, Donald M. McHale. Uh, so if you have, uh, a figure like that who exercises such an incredible hold over the imagination, somebody's going to come up with a theory that they are uh, still alive and kicking and, or were for a while. And uh, I bet there are a bunch of somebodies. There are. There's a whole ton of somebodies. And uh, this Hitler survival myth began pretty much like the week after he uh, shot himself that people were like, but did he? And they start, you know, arguing about U-boats that surface in Buenos Aires after a mysterious delay and blah, blah, blah. And so there's all manner of ways that um, uh, fictive Hitler could have fictively escaped uh, the actual Reich's Chancellery as it burned down around him. Mikhail is sort of, he lays out the myths and he talks about some of what you talked about, that, that sort of need to believe that either a great devil or a great a uh, hero figure is still alive. Many of the people who are spreading the myth are people who are like, yeah, Hitler's just rope-a-dope. He's going to come back and kill all y'all. And plenty of people were people who had legitimate, uh, uh, terrified, you know, boogeyman beliefs about it. And some of them were just Russians who were messing with you and were um, uh, spreading rumors just to make the West look bad and say, oh, he's probably hiding out in Washington, writing your uh, fascist war plans. And, uh, and, and so that there was a lot of disinformatia around it as well. Mikhail is writing a little too early to get into that, but, uh, he does mention it and it's a, it's a good overview. If you're looking to find Hitler in Brazil for your, for your adventure, 
Mikhail is a good uh, rundown of where he might have been. And finally, uh, this uh, title cites a, uh, a presumably non-existent planet that we've uh, talked about <laughs> in, in passing, at least. This is Secret Journey to Planet Serpo, a true story of interplanetary travel by Len Casson. Oh, it says it's true, so I, I retract my previous write-on. Uh, yeah, it says true right on the front. They couldn't do that. Um, yeah, so this is, we've talked about Project Serpo, which is a, uh, basically a cultural exchange between 12 government, uh, agents, uh, astronauts, whatever, get, uh, sent to the planet Serpo in Zeta Reticuli, where, uh, the aliens are from, the gray aliens, and they sent their own dudes, uh, to hang out in Dolce and eat strawberry ice cream and, uh, mess with the American military industrial complex. I, I think I, I saw the movie that ends with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so the, um, uh, this is the inside story on Project Serpo. Um, I'm not a million percent sure what you do with Serpo, except make it a really weird LARP, maybe. Um, I'm sure someone out there in the story game world is like, oh, Ken, <laughs> let me, let me show you the fun of Serpo. And if they do, I've found their book. Because it's just, we went there and it was another planet and we came back and as, as UFO theories And it was go, scary, right? It's basically, it's a captivity narrative, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, uh, we were taken and we were off in this other thing and there was these weird people. And in many ways they showed us how, what fools we are, but we can't be living that way. We have to be living on earth. I mean, it's, it's a straight up captivity narrative just 300 years later. Well, uh, one thing that we are always captive to on this uh, podcast is the uh, limitations of linear time. And I think Ken looking up at my supply of linear time, I see that we've run out of it, but I think we get, might get some back next week. Get a so, uh, let's head out of this here podcast. And we'll head back into another one a mere seven days from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Get yourself on the best shelf by joining such Patreon backers as... Phil Groff. Simon Proctor. Chris Lydon. Andrew Collins. And Darren Dumay. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Walrus Revenge. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.